This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast, and I'm your host this week, Ann Nicholson-Weber. Before we begin, I do want to say one thing. We are in the rehearsal hall at Lifeline, which um, is located right along the L. So there's going to be a lot of uh, train noise throughout this interview, which I hope you'll all bear with because it's quite appropriate given that the show we're going to be discussing takes place largely in the London underground and uh, whizzing by trains is evocative of the atmosphere of the show. My guests today are Paul Holmquist, Charlie Alves, and Alan Donahue, all of whom are involved in the uh, production of Neverwhere, adapted from the novel by Neil Gaiman. Uh, the adapter is Rob Kozlarek, and the show is playing right now at Lifeline Theater. Paul is the director. Charlie designed the video projections, and Alan is the scene and properties designer. And I invited them because... This is an amazing example, in my view, of stage magic. Um, Lifeline has crammed an enormous, complicated fantasy world into a tiny little space, which is something that the company specializes in, taking very large books and turning them into plays that fit on their not very large stage. So I thought it would be really interesting to try to get at how they do that. And Paul, if you could just tell us how it begins, how you begin your work with designers, um, you know, whatever it was, many months ago. There are some um, aspects in the script, uh, such as um, before a train pulls into a station, a smoke monster reaches out and grabs for our lead character, and reading that in the stage directions that Rob has written, um, I will say, we'll deal with that later. <laughs> um, and in a script like Neverwhere, where there is something fantastic happening every four or five pages, um, some ideas will come to mind early, and uh, some we just have to be patient and wait for the muse to, to strike us when we have um, the technical tools in hand to play with. But for, um, for example, The Beast of London was something that uh, long before, before we even cast the show in August, I um, had a thought about using uh, multiple puppet pieces that uh, would fill the stage and have the ability to fly apart and come back together again in different configurations. Mm. I didn't know what that would be, um, but I brought that idea to the puppet designer, Kimberly Morris, and through a series of sketches and some feedback, um, landed on what you'll see on the stage. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a, I, I believe strongly in the collaborative process, and I like to try and just plant a seed or spark an interest and in an idea with, with the designers and um, really trust them and their artistry and their creativity to flesh it out. Well, maybe we should even go one step further back, because as you're talking, it's occurring to me that you're, I mean, Alan, for instance, has worked with this company for decades. Um, but I could imagine that you begin to have a picture in your mind of an aesthetic for the show, and then you need to pick designers who you think will serve that? Or is that how it works? I mean, is it like hiring an actor to do a role because you have a particular thing in mind already? Well, I, I'm in the ensemble, um, and Alan's a member of the ensemble as well, 
he's in high demand as a as a properties and uh, scenic designer uh, for his specific um, ability to make that small space do amazing things. Mm-hmm. Plenty so of small spaces in Chicago. Before I uh, before I even had an uh, an inkling of what the space should look like or mm-hmm. feel like, mm-hmm. I knew I wanted Alan to be a part of the project. Yeah, it actually was a rather extended process because um, because of the challenges of the shows in many ways. Um, and essentially, when you have a show that demands so much of you, I find that it's really important to hone in on a central image of something mm-hmm. that's going to be the organizing factor around the show. And... and it started off, it was the subway tunnel for me in, in the largest sense, and, and that had some certain advantages to it, but really only only wanted to be a subway tunnel, no matter what I tried to layer on top of it. Then I sort of did a step back and said, well, it's all about doors. We have a character named Door. Her talent is that she opens doors. Mm-hmm. Maybe it should just be doors all over the mm-hmm. set. Mm-hmm. And and that's the only thing that's there. Um, and we, we, we had a meeting and we pretty much committed to that idea. We committed to six large doors, essentially. And I went home and, and started working at it and said, Where's my That's tunnel? N- yeah, it's not the image that that, that is there. Uh-huh. Um, and so in the process of working in the show, all the designers have been bringing in images everywhere. You know, I, I from, from books, from the Internet, from wherever, you know, I probably... I probably was in the neighborhood of, of 150 or 200 images I'd collected mm-hmm. for myself, and then a certain number of them I shared. And so... Let me interrupt. I just have one quick question. Neil Gaiman is a graphic novelist, but I've never seen this book. Is this actually a graphic novel, um, or are there he's illustrations? A, he's a writer um, and not a graphic artist. Uh-huh. Um, he's known for the Sandman series, which is a graphic novel series. So he collaborated. Um, but that was a collaboration with other artists. Um, and Neverwhere was first produced as a BBC television series, which he then adapted into a novel. And it has been adapted into a comic book or a graphic novel format uh-huh. by other writers and but the, uh, but the book that he published did not have significant illustrations correct. None. None. Yeah. because that's i for myself i know when i read a novel if it's illustrated those images just stick that becomes how it has to look and i could have, i just wondered if that happens to you or, i mean he paints very vivid pictures um you know the trouble with this show is the the pictures are rather vivid and they're rather unattainable. Uh, They're very specific. I took the book with me on a trip to London Mm -hmm. and uh, looked at the actual locations in the book uh, where he is on basically the west side of of London and Soho, and um, and he is in the British Museum, and he is in Trafalgar Square. Um, but what we were really focusing on were some of the derelict tube stations um, that his characters occupy, and I think it was some of that source material that really that really fed Stop. Alan's imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eventually we pulled into, I, I sent off to Paul, I said, okay, now this is really the core research, and it was probably 15 images. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at least you take at least two of them and put them together 
um, in a strange way, and and you would have what this set was. Really, what I did for the set was I didn't design any of the unachievable locales. I instead created a series of portals and entrances and exits to them, mm-hmm. and so you could. Uh, it, it sort of, you know, you could play the center downstage area of our theater, and then you could turn, make a very quick exit, some, and make a very quick re-entrance in that. And then, through the efforts of Charlie as a projection designer, Kevin Gawley as the lighting designer, um, maybe one little extra little scenic element, but hardly ever mm-hmm. was a scenic element. Um, and, and a character saying, wow, we're here. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we made the changes. And, you know, the the strength of doing that is when you have the unattainable, is like when you're in a novel and you read the descriptions and they're so vivid in that and you create the whole world. You know, the audience creates the whole world. Then they get involved in the situation, the characters, mm-hmm. the action that the character is involved in. And, and the locale really doesn't need to be there. In this strange sense, how, how many how many places are there approximately? Do you think in this mm. story? Um, the, the, there are probably ten, fifteen oh, at least, major yeah. locations. Uh-huh. So it's it's like a movie in that sense. I mean, that you mm-hmm. just have to go in a split second from one place to another place. Just because Charlie's sitting here, and I know that there must have been some point maybe the very beginning or somewhere along the line where you said, I think we need video. <laughs> um, when was that point? Well, I actually, um, I saw Charlie's work in... Uh, a year ago, yeah. Yeah, in another production a year ago mm-hmm. at the Griffin Theater and um, called Big uh, Little Brother. And uh, that had a lot of video design in it. And it was a projection, a type of projection work that I hadn't seen before. Um Typically, I see still. You see still images, um, but here I was seeing a lot of movement and images that were changing, um, and that got me excited. So I just asked Charlie to consider it and imagine that we would be just really working together very collaboratively. I mm-hmm. just invited mm-hmm. him to bring his paint box and and to just play with stuff. And so when we were in tech rehearsal, I would say, "Can you?" do a little sparkly magic over here or can we do something over here can you put some flames in here it was pretty cool we developed a shorthand very fast and it was it was it was a really cool shorthand because like he said he just said he's like can i have a little sparkly magic here downstage left and it's like okay no wait five. that's in tech week yeah in tech week that I, seems I, like incredibly i mean i guess maybe it's just because technology has come so far that you can do things overnight but it used to be i would have thought that well, video I, I required- can't, I, Pre-tech week, I come in with, like he said, my toolbox. I, mm-hmm. I come in with um, so much pre-created content that I don't even know if I'm going to use or not. Right. Just a, keep a content library that's mm-hmm. that takes up a thousand gigabytes on your hard drive mm-hmm. and keep it with you at all times because you never know. I might ask for. <laughs> we're literally sitting there going mm-hmm. through my library, looking through different um, different magic cues mm-hmm. just looking at it. he's like well you know and paul would make that decision right on the spot and then we would sit there pause and place it so let me just be sure i'm getting this you come in you you know what this show is about yeah. you come in with a whole bunch of stuff that you've done 
for the show or it's just uh, stuff that you actually just have that you some collected? Some of it I have. Some of it I've created. Some mm-hmm. of it I've captured. Some of it I've shot. Okay. And so <laughs> some of it is under a heading in your index that says magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And you click down and you say, okay, here's some magic. Well, here's some different magic. And what that means is little sparkly lights mm-hmm. or what? What are some yeah, examples little, little of? little sparkly lights or... Uh, there was a really great scene, uh, Earl's Court, that we created. It was It's just a little flame, a little mm-hmm. flickering flame, and there's three of them. And it's just something that I've had for a while that I've collected over the years. And and so we ended up putting one in, and then we put two in, and then we put three in. It's It was great just to have this whole library of different kind of flames we could pick from. We're like, okay, this looks the best. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden we have this flame, and I think Kevin came to me after a week of having these flames in there and goes, you know what would be great? He's the lighting The lighting design. designer. Yeah, Kevin Gawley, the lighting designer. comes. It would be really great if we had a little bit more red or yellow in that flame. And literally it was, I would go sit down on my computer, put more little red and yellow into it. And he's like, that's great. Yeah. And it's the technology that makes that available. So Video, you can do things instantaneously. instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah. So Alan, did you, did, was the fact that there were going to be projections, any part of your uh, consciousness as you're designing a set? Um, do you have to make places for them to be or not? I think, in my world on this show, I felt like the the projection should be all kind of organic to the environment that was there, and it should not ever be a screen per se, but an area that suddenly takes on animation, takes yeah. on life in some fashion. Um, and so it really gave me a lot of freedom just to really concentrate on on placement of objects uh, in the space to facilitate action mm-hmm. um, because we just sort of said, well, if we can't shoot in a particular area, we won't shoot there. We can hit something else mm-hmm. and create it there. And, and and I think that was sort of a tacit understanding among at least I gave myself that license that way. So Charlie's uh, going to fit around you and not the other way around in this case. Is what and that's saying. how I like to work. Mm-hmm. I, I, I prefer to work. It's like, okay, set designer's got this. He's... Alan's got the set ready. Everything's good. Then I'll come in. I'll and then where do you want me to go? Like, <laughs> Well, are there requirements for surfaces that you project onto? Uh, Can not, you project onto anything? Well, it depends. Um, if you want to make a really crisp, clean projection, like mm-hmm. uh, in a journal piece we made, I don't know how detailed we want to get with it, but um, there's a journal piece where we need to see a face. Mm-hmm. And basically, we needed to put an actual screen that could hold an image so it was clear and you could read the lips and the dialogue Mm -hmm. coming out. Mm -hmm. Um, For the other projections, you don't really need to see too much detail. You just need to kind of get the gist of it. So you literally can project on anything. So you don't even need flatness? No, Mm -hmm. not at all. Yeah, it puts distortion into the image Mm -hmm. uh, when you don't have flatness. But if... If you're in a world at which distortion right. is yes. to your advantage, why not take advantage right. of it? You right. know, otherwise, I think if we'd given you flat surface, flat yeah. surfaces to work with, yeah. we probably would have been saying, "Can you do something to that image and make, make it, it more goofy?" Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Well, um, Alan, if you could go back to because I I do feel like Lifeline has some institutional knowledge about how to put a cram a huge, complicated world into a small space. And, you know, you've said, well, I start by coming up with a central image, which originally was the tunnels, and then you got diverted to the doors, and in the end you went back essentially to the tunnels, but the tunnels as 
you said portals, and that was a really good word. My, my impression of the stage is just that there are kind of two main circular tubes almost that people go in and out of that become different kinds of things, but certainly have the impression of tunnels. And then what else is on that stage? What else did you... Um, the other major element is the is the bridge, if you will, or the donut, as we call it, because mm-hmm. it's a large, primarily circular platform with a big circular hole in the center. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was higher up. The, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's higher up, um, and we're lucky here because we have a really substantial building. We have a grid in the building that we know exactly how it? how it has been installed into the building, mm-hmm. how much weight it can carry in that so we can use use it to suspend a structure like that that we can put people across we can fight on that we can do various things on it mm-hmm. um you know because it's really not i call this a journey stage and essentially you know every theater that does any sort of epic and they're moving from location to location you want a way to to go to go stage right and then go up something to get to a high platform that allows you to transverse to another location and then come down the other side. And it's making circles in the space. Mm. And everybody does that. And you have to uh, find ways to make it interesting in that. You know, To a large extent, my basic rule is you try not to hug the walls as much as possible because then the lighting designer has to light the walls. Hmm. And as soon as you light the walls, you, it's harder to put them to say, well, they're traveling the road from from the floating market to the maze underground because you get too caught up in the fact that, oh, there's walls around them and, 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 and structure around them. And you want to get a sense of more or less that they're lost in. Uh, either, either mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. That makes <laughs> um, sense to me. That, and so, so you you want to get them pulled away from it, and that's mm-hmm. that's perhaps the one thing I do different than most of the other designers I see work here with when they're doing their journey sets is is they have a tendency to hug the walls because the directors are asking them for more space to do battles in or whatever, mm-hmm. and. I try to clear the floor space by supporting from above, and then then allows me to push out into the space and create um, create more space for the travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that made a lot of sense, and that was really interesting. Well, so Paul, one of your jobs is to figure out how to create those transitions. We're in one place, and now we're in another place. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is your vocabulary, so to speak, t- to do that with? What are the elements that you can use to create a new place? Well, I use a lot of that faith in the audience that Alan was speaking of, that they will, that engagement will fill in uh, the sense of travel. I often have, um, there's a few times in this play that I have actors exiting and entering from the same doorway or from mm-hmm. the same area Um but there's something about there's something about the perspective of movement for me um, in a in a spatial sense that having people pass you on their way out and then enter from behind you on their way back in that you're traveling you get a sense of traveling with them um, so for me stage movement uh, choreography or or um, 
stage direction for me has has to do with flow of movement and that it that it feels organic um that it moves quickly and um and that it fulfills uh fulfills sort of an expectation of of the movement of the story so it's really about flow for me so let me go back to what i think you just said <laughs> it it might be counterintuitive or you could expect it to be confusing if someone goes off one way and comes back from the same place, but actually that's not what happened there. It's a whole new setting that they they haven't come back into the same place they were in. Right. So it gives the feeling to me when I see it happen that that the whole world has revolved around mm-hmm. because I see them exit, they come right back at me through the same spot. It's it's like I've it's like I've made the journey with them, or the or the world has moved around. Or we, with we're me. looking from the other camera angle, or right, something. Yeah, right. I mean, there is. It's hard not to think about some of this in the vocabulary of film because we're so you know because there are these quick cuts and there are these huge you know jumps in space and and not so much time actually, but certainly space. Um, and yet this is all using such a theatrical language. So, so okay, so going back to what you were talking about, I mean, I, th- I think what you just said is it shouldn't work, but it does. Is that what you just said? <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah, I think... Or sometimes it works I, I and I know the it's, difference. Or, it's, or it's a collaboration with the audience. And mm-hmm. I, think, um, I think you just get into it. You know, there's a, there's a transition at the end of uh, Knightsbridge going into the first floating market scene where... Um, Richard and Hunter are down center, and they don't even move. And all that happens is Charlie has a projection of the interior of Herod's with this big golden pharaoh head that comes up in the back of the theater. Lights shift dramatically. Sound comes in in, into this crazy wild world of the floating market. And then people start entering from everywhere, shouting advertising their wares that they're bringing in. So without even... They haven't gone anywhere. The world has come to them. The world has kind of of appeared and Mm -hmm. and come to them. Mm -hmm. And... I get really excited by that moment, and I and I think I think audiences do too because we're going from this really sort of intimate, very focused, down center two characters in the dark, um, sort of uh, the lens has closed in in mm-hmm. a film like way mm-hmm. on these people, and then all of a sudden it's blown really wide open, mm-hmm. and we are taking in the whole space. Um, yeah. So it's a lot for me about changing the perspective. Yeah, and it's it's avoiding. A traditional scene change, you know, you know, in in you know a different adaptation with a different director, and that it might be a moment and, and it's a like, okay, we, we just we just ended the bridge scene, so we'll go to black, and then we'll bring all this stuff out. In the meantime, we'll have gone off stage, and then we'll bring them in somewhere else, and that. And you lose all the momentum yeah. here. You know, you have the sense, you know, and, and they have gone through this intense moment. And and then suddenly, uh, because the sound comes in, the projection comes in, the lights comes in, you know, you don't have time. You, you have to still be with them. <clears throat> and, and it... And they can bring in the objects that would be the set change and it would take us 20 seconds to do and it would be dead time on stage. But because it's happening in this transformation of the world that, that you know, 
these people bumping in with their long sticks and poles and getting caught in the, the door and that just becomes part of the moment, you right. know. And and so those 20 seconds become excitement versus, oh, let's wait for the next set right. to show up. Right. Okay, now we can go again. Right. Yeah, I, I, I really try to avoid extensive blackouts and scene changes in my work. <laughs> I suspect that audiences are less and less tolerant of that because we're so steeped in film and television, in, in media where you just mm. never have to wait for anything. You know, you don't have to wait for a person to cross the room. They're right. there and then we're in the middle of the conversation or whatever. Um, well, maybe we could talk now a little bit about style and how you achieve a coherent style from all of your designers, which to me this world definitely had. And it might actually be interesting to talk you mentioned the one projection, uh, which is um, the diary. That is to say, we're seeing it's kind of like I think of Star Wars, where you see Obi Wan Kenobi come out, you know, in the <laughs> projection and um, begin to tell you things about the past. Um, so, so that's a very specific task. You've got to get the father to tell his information, but somehow you have to do it in a way that's organic and coherent with the rest of what we're seeing. So, what are the th- things that you have to do or think about to create a video projection that's appropriate for this play? Well, that's a tough question. Um, well, the, the style that we went with is we wanted it to be this this kind of like a handheld video, and um, it, we basically we shot it in a green screen. And the reason why I want to shoot it in a green screen rather than a setting is so it gives us the opportunity to place what background or put it in what setting we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually gave us the opportunity to green screen is to black out behind the actor and be able to make him so crisp and clean that with, uh, with our, uh, with our costume designer, um, she was able to give him that fantastic hat and upper body. And we gave him this Beard. great, great makeup, um, that really made him pop. So, I mean, it was all, it wasn't just me. Right. right. <laughs> it was not just Well, me. none. I mean, I should just say about this interview that I could have had a completely different set of three designers, oh, yeah. all of whose work was crucial to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of decided to focus on the space because, again, it's this shrinking down into, into this little space that yeah. is so distinctive, I would say, about this design in this piece. Um, well, my impression of that, uh, uh, that scene of the, the diary is that it's kind of... It's almost flickery or it's jerky or it's... Yeah, we basically added an effect to um, to kind of give it like... It gave it noise and distortion. Yeah. To kind of... Um, it wasn't just through the projection getting the distortion. I added on the distortion just to kind of give it... It's supposed to be this new technology. Mm-hmm. Brand new technology that no one had. Like you said, the Star Wars, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Right. It was actually something that came up when we were first talking about it, how we wanted this thing to flicker up and shoot... And have it almost be a hologram. Yeah. Look like a hologram. Which it did. I was going to actually say exactly that. And we kind of went with that technique where um, it would look like that. And I think with the distortion, because if you remember in, in Star Wars, <laughs> it has distortion. It's kind of got that green yeah. tint over it. It's got crackly. The or, crackly. Uh-huh. And it's got the, the, the 32 cycle hum on the video. And it looks almost bad. Well, it gives you the, to me, the, the association is that this is an old. It's, it's kind of deteriorated mm-hmm. a little bit that it's, you know, not in pristine condition. Mm-hmm. Something that you were just saying, it, it occurred to me that this is a 
very appropriate piece because although it's fantastical, it's not a technological world. Um, you just said, you know, this, mm -hmm. we wanted this to look like kind of a new technology. It's, yeah. It has almost, I wouldn't say Victorian, but it has a um, an old feeling at the same time as it's, I mean, we yeah, don't know I mean, where we, we are or when, but... With, with steampunk, it's often a, any term probably to describe the world. What, so yeah. What'd you say? Steampunk. The, there's an Steam I punk? idea that um, when the Industrial Revolution happened, people started throwing things out um, because things could be remade. Mm. Um, and that in this world of London Below, where things fall through the cracks, that people are taking uh, like an alarm clock and putting it on a, a leather band and using it as a watch, mm -hmm. um, that they're repurposing um, things from the Victorian age, from the, from the early Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely sort of there's aesthetic. a feeling that this world is behind in, in yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, it, it was particularly in... Um, Elizabeth Whistler's costume work that yeah. that, that probably showed most that mm -hmm. almost everything every character was layered in and some motif of of things that had been collected mm -hmm. things that were special mm -hmm. to that person and many and of these characters are supposed to be hundreds of years old too so right. we wanted to have that sense they're still dressing as they did in their youth <laughs> velvets but mm -hmm. frayed and yeah right, right. yeah yeah well, um, I think we were talking before about um, how you create a coherent style amongst um, multiple designers. And is that a matter of early on you start having, you know, so, sort of words, I want it, and there's a following list of words, you know, I want it scruffy or Victorian or whatever it is. Is that one of the ways you communicate it? I know that Alan mentioned images. Paul, do you come in with images that to give a picture of what you've got in mind? There, there, occasionally I'll find source material that speaks to me for how I want the show to feel or look. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in an early meeting with the uh, costume designer, Elizabeth Whistler, who shared with me a, uh, a video of a, um, a music video of a new band that she had mm -hmm. just found on YouTube. And I shared that with the designers across the board. Um, and it had a, it had sort of the quality of Victorian collage art, um, but it was also very dark and very uh, had some very violent images, some stark mm. color changes, stark sonic changes from sort of quiet to loud and aggressive, um, and we all kind of latched on to that uh, that first sort of inspiration mm -hmm. as as something that we wanted to develop further. So I know for Kevin. Uh, Golly, our lighting designer, that he, what he saw in that was very isolated lighting. Um, isolated meaning? Meaning uh, s stark, small areas. One place on the stage and the rest is dark. Right, oh. right. Little areas here and there. Mm -hmm. um, for for me, it had a lot of movement. For um, the sound designer, it was the, it was the juxtaposition of... Um, sort of a gentle humor with with aggressive, uh, really aggressive energy in the music. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that was I. Uh, that sometimes you just find something that really speaks to you. I also saw a play in London when I was there called Warhorse that had um, amazing puppet design in it, mm -hmm. and I brought that source back to share with people as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
In what form? I mean, they hadn't seen it. What did you? Oh, think? I, I purchased uh, in you know in London. They don't give you a program if you want one. You 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 buy, you, you it. buy it for ten pounds, and uh, but it's filled with wonderful photos. Yeah. So I was able to share those photos yeah, with yeah. with people. Yeah, we well, put together also. Or Paul had 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 us put together a a sharing site online so that everybody, as you created new things or new ideas, you could upload them and. And it would send out a message to everybody saying there's new things to look at. Oh, that's and, great. And so you, you could keep in the stream of the moment mm-hmm. of what was current thought and vision and build on it even when we couldn't get together physically in that. And then to a large extent, I think that uh, uh, Paul also created a blog for the entire production and he shared some of that stuff with his general audience there, mm-hmm. but you know, it's certainly uh, certainly some of the discussions about ideas and places and that um, were important to me. I, I kept up with it perhaps more than the, the sharing site because reading the ideas would spark images and ideas that then I could play with. Um, so you're kind of in Paul's head in real time. Yeah. That's yeah. very interesting. And he's sort of in a discussion with our dramaturg a lot of the time through and with with Rob Kothleric, the adapter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a wonderful source of imagery for me and and that, um, you know, and I could do it late at night all by myself and mm-hmm. and then go, go to bed and, and let it... Percolate. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good being able to read that. And and like Alan said, using the sheriff site, you'd be looking at these images while you're working Mm -hmm. at home. And it's not just you get to see them at the production meeting and then you go home. Mm -hmm. Just the over I think and, and this is the first time I've designed a show like that where we've been in such direct contact with each other outside of production meetings, meetings yeah, that, that ongoing much. way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, what's striking me about this, because I, I began this thinking we were talking about stage magic, and a lot of that, because this is a you know storefront theater, there aren't huge budgets. It's not like Wicked where you can do anything with hydraulics and heaven knows what. And so I'm, I'm kind of coming into it thinking that it's a, it's a very low-tech um, vocabulary you have, which is mostly true. I mean, you're using puppets, you are using projection, but mostly it's just the lights and the fabrics and the actual scene and so forth. But what I'm hearing about, which I would have had no idea about, is that the technology becomes hugely important in the way you communicate. And you were talking, and and the speed with which you can do things, because like Ellen, you were talking early, I'm sorry, Charlie, you were talking early on about how you could you know, fiddle with your video right then and there in the tech rehearsal, for instance. So yeah. there's this technology underlying it that's not actually on the stage that's pretty interesting to me. Anyway, there's too much to talk about, um, but it's, it's uh, I think, uh, just a wonderful example of what a relatively small budget theater in a relatively small space can achieve with enough imagination and collaboration. So thanks so much for coming to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.